he speaks fluent Klingon. Backwards. The best story he's ever told was to himself. Of the two women he slept with in his life, one fell asleep, the other thought he was someone else. Dogs take him for walks. He is the world's most semi-interesting man. I don't often smoke, but when I do, I only choose Vista Vapors. Visit them today at tinyurl.com slash p3vista. Keep it flavorful, my friends. When you go shopping for wine, do you look at the labels? Do you stare at the price and wonder if the wine is worth the expensive tag? Well, stop it, because Wine of the Month Club has you covered. Every month, Wine of the Month Club is going to send you two bottles of high-quality wine right to your front door. And what better way to say I'm thinking of you than a subscription to the original Wine of the Month Club for a friend or a sweetheart. Each month, they'll be reminded of your thoughtfulness and will receive the monthly wine letter and newsletter binder. Recipes, wine knowledge, and great wine, and the opportunity to get more of their favorites is at hand. Give with confidence and joy, knowing that you're a part of the original Wine of the Month Club. By the way, there are no dues, no fees, no hidden charges. Cancel any time with no obligation. Just pay no more than $23.96 plus shipping for two great bottles of wine. Go there now. Sign up by visiting our link, tinyurl.com slash p3wine. That's tinyurl.com slash p3wine. The Wine of the Month Club, the original wine club since 1972. Welcome to P3 Radio. Oh, my God. <laughs> Demolition! We're coming for you, baby! <laughs> and uh, you're going to call me back tomorrow or whatever I get. You better believe I took my turn in the <laughs> What? Cool story, bro. PG3 Radio. Nope. Here's your host, Josh Friday. I wonder when Fritz is coming up sometime. Yeah, well, all three of his <laughs> sons will real soon. Richard Relican. I don't know. Is this making any sense to anybody out there? It's showtime! It's showtime! It's showtime! Ladies and gentlemen, joining the P3 radio show right now, we are honored to have MMA's leg lock monster, Josh. Leg lock monster, Jonathan Ivey. Jonathan, thank you for being a part of P3 radio today. I'm glad to be here, guys. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you guys. Well, I mean, we've we've been looking up a lot of your matches and a lot of your stuff here lately just to kind of get pumped up for this interview. And some of the things we've seen is you're a charismatic guy. For wrestling fans like us that watch MMA, you're kind of like the best of both worlds. You're like the big guy that's also flashy and charismatic in the ring. Thank you. I, w- I wish some. I wish there were some females in Middle Tennessee that felt the way you did about me. Because uh, I'm, I'm I'm on a dry patch right now. But yeah, man, I appreciate all that. That was well, nice to hear. Yeah, man. But but I mean, it's it's refreshing to see that because, like I was talking about earlier, we come from a professional wrestling background, and you have to be bigger than life itself when you're in that ring. You overact. Sometimes you see some MMA matches and some guys. You can tell they're not having fun. It's just strictly business. They go out there. But some of those matches where I've saw where you were just taunting people saying, come on, is that all you got? That's interesting. That makes me want to get into it more. Now, I'm either going to be a fan of yours, which in this scenario, you're way bigger than me. So I'm going to say I'm a fan of yours. <laughs> and so I'm either going to go that route or I'm going to root against you. So it makes it interesting to see that. Well, so many uh, fighters are cookie cutter and they they all look the same. They all act the same. And, um, 
for me, the reason why I do it, I dress up in the costumes and uh, and act silly in the ring sometimes. It's just a stress reliever for me. Uh, this was not my calling. I was not supposed to do this. I was supposed to be a high school football coach. Right. And this just kind of happened, and uh, it, it has distracted me for the last 20 years. <laughs> I just do it as I just do it to, to calm myself and, and to let some of the stress. If I'm acting like it doesn't phase me and if I'm not scared, I'm always scared to death. But if I act like I'm not, then uh, I don't know. I guess it calms me down a little bit. And people sometimes take it the wrong way, uh, but I'm just trying to get through the night, get a paycheck, and make rent, man. And so that's um, they're just going to have to deal with it. And I was taking so many fights in such a short time span that uh, I was losing some because I didn't have time to heal or prepare. And then when I found out that I wouldn't be able to win every fight, I was well, there's got to be a reason for the promoters to bring me back. And so it had to be the costumes and the acting silly and the leg locks and the big bravado and the mouthful of goatees and the tattoos all over me. It had, there had to be something different about me to get promoters to keep bringing me back. Then you got to occasionally win some too. But yeah, that, so I just started, you know, that little, I guess it's called, um, my stick. So. I know Muhammad Ali talked a lot about he was a big, gorgeous George wrestling fan when he was younger. Did you have anybody, like, even not even wrestling, even if it was somebody else, did you have somebody else that you kind of looked at and said, that's pretty cool, I'm going to act like that in the ring? Um, well, I didn't watch a lot. When I was real young, I watched pro wrestling. Right. And uh, I lived in Paris, Tennessee till I was nine, oh, and then I just started moving all around the South. Uh, I would probably move about once every month or two months. Uh, to another city. Um, long story on that one. But until I was nine, I, I, I grew up pretty much in, in Paris. And I believe it was Saturday mornings, uh, the fabulous ones and Jerry Lawler oh, yeah. and Bill Dundee and Dutch Mantel and all those guys would come on. But um, I watched them. And then when I got a little older, I started getting to watch the big, the, some of the bigger names. And then Dusty Rhodes, the way he would do an interview and he would rhyme and he was kind of like, big and out of shape but it still acts like the women wanted him and so i started i started taking some of that and running with it most definitely man he 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 was a trip what uh what made you want to get into mma man i never wanted to i never knew what it was um i got a football scholarship i was i was going to a high school in um houston texas just north of houston and I got a football scholarship to Bethel College in McKenzie, Tennessee, right. of all places. And um, it was tiny, and it wasn't a huge scholarship, but they offered me one, so I took it because I was coming from a, kind of a bad situation. I played football there two years, transferred to Austin P, and I stopped growing at five foot nine. Uh, my dream was always to be the defensive tackle for the Washington Redskins. Well, there's not a lot of five foot nine defensive linemen in the NFL. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll keep coming uh, to, to the school and I'll get my degree. And at the time, it was going to be in health and human performance. And I was going to be a high school football coach. And I did powerlifting meets at the time just to uh, to be competitive. And um, I met a guy at a bench press contest. And he, it was on a Wednesday night. And he told me I should be a professional fighter. Well, this was 1998. I didn't know anything about professional fighting. Right. And uh but but I knew I was getting in a lot of fights with you know on the weekends and bars anyway, and he said they would pay me, and so two days later that was on a Wednesday. Two days later on a Friday night he drove me to Evansville, Indiana. I turned pro. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I won in 42 seconds. I uh, I choked a uh, 
I choked the Evansville police officer out. That's who they had me fight that night. Uh, that wasn't a side story. You were just, that was who you were fighting. It wasn't like. You yes. Were, yeah. Yeah. Uh, his name was Sam Smith. I think he still is at the police department in Evansville. But, um, and then uh, I was able to win that one. And then that was kind of like a double-edged sword because I won without training. So after that, I was like, well, I ain't got to train. And, I, you know, they're going to pay me. And this is like free money. Uh, so, I mean, and here I am, uh, that was 98. So here I am 20 years later, man. And that's the only job I've ever had. I haven't, I haven't done anything else. Now you're known as the leg lock monster. How did you get that nickname for somebody that, you know, like you said, you hadn't wanted to be, you hadn't thought about being an MMA. How did you go from that to learning that leg lock that you do? Well, uh, we didn't have wrestling in high school, uh, down in Texas. Uh, where I was at anyway, um, and I wouldn't have been able to wrestle anyway. My t- high school football down in Texas is huge. Oh, yeah. Well, the te- the teachers would pass me during football season, and then uh, when it wasn't football season, I would fail. So I didn't get to do any, any other extracurricular activities. <laughs> so I wouldn't have got to do it anyway, but I, there, I, I didn't have any wrestling skills. So I was getting these fights, and I was always on bottom. Um. And so I had to adapt and, and, and figure out, okay, what am I going to do? These guys keep taking me down. What can I do from underneath them? So I just started gravitating towards leg locks and study them. And, and that probably took about five years. And then uh, it just caught on. Like, um, I just, it was just easy for me. You know, some people can do things easier than, uh, than the average person can. And for some reason, just leg locks were easy for me. And now I've got more leg lock wins than anybody in the history of the sport. And I'm a heavyweight. And so uh, it just, I don't know. Like, and uh, uh, Grappling Magazine, which was a national publication, they ran an article on me. And I didn't know they were going to title the article The Leg Lock Monster. But they did. And the nickname just stuck after that article came out. I don't know if anybody else got to read that article because uh, I remember the magazine came out in Books a Million. And they had like 30 on the newsstand. I bought up all 30 of them. So nobody else in Clarksville, Tennessee got to read that article. You are one of the most entertaining fighters in the world. When did you start to incorporate that into your game? Well, um, I was dating a girl in 2000. Uh, she got pregnant. So I was going to be a, a daddy. Well, I, 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 at the time, I was fighting probably three or four times a year. And um, when she got pregnant, you know, I've never had a dad. I don't know anything about being a dad, but I knew it was going to take money. So uh, when I found out she got pregnant, I started fighting. And I, I fought uh, 26 times that in uh, 2003. And that averages out every other weekend. And I had to come up with something to get these promoters to keep bringing me out because I was losing just as much as I was winning. Uh, and so I started doing silly things and uh, – I did. Uh, I remember I fought down in New Orleans, and uh, I dropped a guy, and then you know beat on him a little bit, and then I thought, what? For some reason, the rocks, uh, people's elbow, sprang in my mind. So I jumped <laughs> up, sprang off the ropes, and did the people's elbow in a uh, cage fight, um, and just just stuff like that. That that got a lot of buzz, and I got a lot of uh, attention for that. And then when that happened, I was like, oh, I'm going to start running with this. So I started doing the karate, the karate kids crane kick and just all kind of silly things. And uh, sometimes it worked out to my benefit and sometimes it didn't, but uh, it left an impression anyway. Yeah. Either way, man, 
people remember you for that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, and in wrestling, in wrestling, we're taught it doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's if they remember you at the end of the night. That's what people remember. Right, and uh, it, it, it has really sustained me, man. Because if you pull me up on the internet, I think the internet's got me at like uh, losses or something. But um, there was no way, you know. I've, I've been fighting in the heavyweight division. Everybody, I'm fighting six five, six four. I'm five foot nine. Uh, I'm not overly athletic. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be competing in any of those bodybuilding shows that you announced. <laughs> uh, so, so I had to. <laughs> I had to come up with something, and, and my thing was acting silly and uh, being able to take a lot of punishment. Um, and so that, that's what uh, that's what's uh, been able to sustain me for so long. Well, I'll say this, Josh. You know what? You know nowadays when you watch MMA, how many times does a fighter fight in a given year? Maybe once, maybe twice. Maybe three most, times. At, at the, the most, most twice. Yeah, at the most three, two, three times. Right. This man has fought. 26 pro fights in a single year. God almighty. Can you believe that? What was it like to have that kind of a grueling schedule? To Did you think about it at the time? Like, but this is a lot of fights. Or was you just like, bring on the next guy? No, Well, no. Uh, I didn't realize it was it, it was happening. But I, I, I knew, you know, at the time we were living in an apartment. So uh, my daughter had gotten in a terrible habit of eating every day. So I had to keep had the money coming in, right? And so the rent would come due, the car note would come due, insurance, the baby's got to eat. Uh, you know, it, it was just it, everything kept coming every month. And um, uh, it just worked out where I had to keep the money coming in. And at the time, this was this was back uh, 15 years ago, man. The money was not – I don't know the, the, the local pro wrestlers, what they're making, but we, I was only making probably – seven eight hundred dollars a fight uh on on a a majority of those you know so i had to keep doing it yeah pro wrestlers don't make that much if they're not in the wwe you got a hot dog and a handshake yeah pretty much stuff (laughs) oh wow so so these local wrestlers that do the local shows like at the national guard armories and stuff I think Charlie told me, Doug, did they make like 50, 75 bucks or something like that? I mean, maybe. I mean, that's the thing. If you get a good promoter, you'll get something like that. But you've got a lot of guys out there that, you know, around the the late 90s, the talent pool for the indies was just polluted with all these guys that wanted to do it from the backyard that didn't want to be trained. So you mm-hmm. had a lot of guys that just flooded an area thinking they knew how to run a show and it just destroyed the market. So there's no money there. And then you have promoters that aren't that good, that don't know how to get sponsors, that don't know how to pay their guys. And then you have the stupid guys that come back for no money. So, yeah, I mean, there's it's very rare that you find somebody that makes good money at doing independent wrestling well, around this a, area. A lot of the guys will just be like, well, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Right. Get yourself over, and you'll make money elsewhere. Which helps if you are Jerry Lawler or somebody that has an opportunity to give. Well, now, if yeah, you don't have but, an opportunity to give, you're just basically out there wrestling for Rufus and his his wrestling company that hasn't <laughs> ever done anything, you know? Right, right. Uh, and so, but, but what's the chances of, of getting over, um, you know, on, in, in, on one of those that – I've, I've been to a couple of those National Guard armies, and they got like 20, 25 people out in the crowd. But so is it? Is it getting over? Is that just something to get people to 
to come wrestle for him? Is it, is it not very likely? Now, here's the thing. You get a young guy, you're a promoter, you get a young guy that's just started wrestling, you put him in the ring and you tell him, bring your friends and family. And, you know, young people still have friends and family. So they bring yeah. them all, they get in that ring and they have 25 relatives or 40 relatives and friends cheering them on. That's and it, paid $5 to get in. Right. And they're making no money. <laughs> It's almost like they made a fortune that night because for one night they get to be this rock star. So they end up pretty much like a drug addict chasing the dragon of that crowd reaction. Like I said, there's not a lot of upward movement really. I mean, unless you're wrestling on a major circuit where somebody can see you, chances are if you're doing a local promotion, you're not getting paid but like 20 bucks and a handshake, you're probably not going to go very far. Yeah. And that's sad. You fought tons of guys all over the world. Is there anyone that you haven't crossed paths with that you would like to before you end your career? Oh, uh, well, I mean, my favorite fighter of all time was Tank Abbott. So, uh, and I've kind of, you know, stole a bunch of the stuff he had going on where he would, you know, uh, uh, show out for the crowd and stuff like that. But so if I could fight anybody, it's him. But now Tank Abbott's probably drawing SSI right now. He, he's a, he's an older guy. Yeah. Uh, but, but as far as it, I don't really have any dreams of anybody in particular. Just whoever the promoter is going to pay me to, so I can pay rent next month is is really, you know, what it boils down to, man. Um, this I never really loved. It. Like I'll coach some of these kids, and they love it, man. They just there's nothing they want to do besides go in the gym and train and get better. And I was never that guy, man. I I was just always thinking about something else, and this was just a way to make you know. To me, it was easy money. Other right. people might think, you know, washing dishes at a Mexican restaurant is easy money. But to me, this was easy. Um, once I could get to the fight now, the, the day of, that's it's miserable. But everything besides the day of was just, it was easy money. So I kept doing it. and I just didn't have the love for it that uh, a lot of people do. And you think doing something like this, you better love it just because the... Uh, the um, amount of damage and stuff you take, but for whatever reason, I never loved it, and um, I, I was always had my mind on something else. Well, right. I mean, a lot of people, especially when you look at like the heavyweight division as a whole, you know, they'll say, "Well, this guy was good, Junior Dos Santos, whatever." But a lot of guys, they'll look at like Fedor Emelianenko, and they'll say, "That's the guy. That's the guy that dominated." you know, his era. I mean, is he ever a guy that you've ever, you know, even met or, you know, hey, that guy, I think maybe I could hold a chance at him at, you know, whatever. Uh, I've never met Fedor. He just recently, the last couple of years, started fighting in America. Most of his, I'd probably say 30 fights of his, or overwhelming majority of his fights took place in uh, Japan. Right, um, right. Which, which was interesting. Um you know, he won all of them in Japan. Uh, the one disqualification that he lost was early in his career, and it wasn't a true MMA fight. Um, but he won, like, 30 of them right. and then in a row. And then he comes over here and can't win two in a row. Well, you ask, why is that? Well, over there, there's no commission. And over there, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, the organization was ran by, you know, um, the powers that be and the, the, and the, and the mafia. and yeah. Right. Uh, oh, oh, over here you had commissions and you had regulations and you had 
uh, things like that going on, and you can't win two in a row. So were all those 30 real? I don't know. I have my doubts. You know, I, uh, that, I've thought that too. And from what I've heard, Big Daddy Gary Goodrich, he spoke out within the last three to four years talking about, well, you know, these fights were legit, but on certain occasions, this guy, he may have, you know, took the dive or whatever just because the Yakuza aspect. I mean, have you ever heard that before? I've absolutely heard it before. And, um, you know, Mark Coleman fought in pride. And uh, when he fought, um, it was a Japanese fighter, and I and it, it slipped, um, Takata. When he fought Takata, Takata got him in an ankle lock, and Marks came back years later and said that was, you know, he lost on purpose. Right. Uh, they paid him extra to lose. Well, that's just something I hear through the grapevine. I fought a guy named Big John Dixon up in Boston, Massachusetts. John Dixon fought on Pride 1, and we've gotten to be pretty friendly, you know, since then. And and John came out and told me, look, they took me, they flew me to Japan a week early. We choreographed the fight, and this was in an MMA fight in Pride 1, the very first Pride. He choreographed it, and he knew how he was going to lose. And so it definitely happened in Japan. Now, did it happen with Fedor? I don't know, but it's very suspicious. A guy goes 30-0 and 0 in Japan and can't win two in a row in America. That's suspicious. Well, you know, right. Jerry Lawler used to tell us in the back at, when I was in Memphis Wrestling, he used to tell us, don't think that pro wrestling is the only scripted sport out there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, you look at it like this when you see guys, anytime there is money that can be changed hands on the outcome, don't think mm -hmm. that people don't know that. But the funny thing is that was where wrestling was. Wrestling used to be this legit sport that they brought in, and, and then the carnivals brought it in, and they would work it a little bit to make money off of it. That's why they called it a carniac. Yeah, they'd have shoot matches, right, with Carl right. Gotch, or I think it was Carl Gotch that uh, would do all those shoots. And then I guess it uh, transitioned over. Um, now, the wrestling thing, man, uh, the way they sell shots and stuff, I absolutely think it could happen in MMA. I think it's, if it happens in, in North America, I think it's probably real rare but because um, right. there's so much other things involved. But over there where it's kind of like the wild, wild west mm -hmm. in, in Japan where there's no uh, – there's no powers that be that could uh, could stop it. I think it's probably rampant. Man, you got a ton of press when you faced Ken Shamrock. And you did the double flip escape. Were yep. you going for a rolling knee bar? Here's the thing with the Ken Shamrock. Yes, it was a, it was going to be a rolling knee bar. I've gotten that on several people. What and, and people don't realize it looks like a little short, fat guy doing a silly barrel roll. That's what it looks. Here's here's the situation. We had fought three rounds. It was a three-round fight. That was at the end of the third round. There was about a minute left, I think. That was the exact same thing as losing in the fourth quarter and throwing a Hail Mary and trying to get lucky. I was hoping when I missed that kick on purpose and turned my back that he would close the distance and he would fall into a rolling knee bar is what it's right, called. Right. He, he didn't. He didn't do it. Well, I didn't know he didn't do it until I was already through that first roll. Now I'm blind. I don't know where he's at, but he wasn't between my legs when I rode. <laughs> so I thought, what the hell? Let's roll this thing again and see. So Why I did not? a second roll. I did a second roll. And uh, that, that, that's how that happened. But um, I, if I could redo one fight in my career, it would definitely be that one. I, went, I got in there and was looking across from Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man, is what his tagline was. Mm -hmm. Here I am, a poor kid that 
comes from the middle of nowhere where you got to sell dope or, or be good at a sport to make any money. And uh, just nobody knew who I was. And I'm in there looking across from him, and it was Ken Shamrock. The guy I used to rent his VHS tapes from Blockbuster and sit in my room and watch. Uh, anyway, it's just it, I, I froze up, didn't let my hands go. When I did punch in the second round, I knocked him down. Uh, but uh, that was just a Hail Mary, and uh, right. it gets made fun of because it's a little fat guy doing a roll. But that was my Hail Mary. Uh, I just it, it, it went, it, the pass fell incomplete. Well, man. For what it's worth, I remember, you know, watching Inside MMA on uh, HDNet and, you know, Bosch Rutens, he's calling the thing. He's like, well, uh, I don't know what this guy is doing. Uh, he's doing the double flip, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and really, I mean, I, I was surprised that he didn't even notice you were going for the rolling e-bar initially and then you just escaped. Well, if you, you know, watch most of his fights when he does that rolling new knee bar, it was the same flip that he was doing in that fight against Ken. Well, Shimra. yeah, but I mean, obviously boss, right. he, he's only seen what he's seen. Right. You know, I just thought it was hilarious. Well, you guys, uh, I've said the same thing you guys were. And that's when I kind of, um, cause boss was on there with Babalu and they were kind of joking about it, which it's fine. But the way they cut that clip that they showed, it, may, it had me punching my chest and egging Shamrock on, and then it goes right to him punching me uh, in the – well, me beating my chest was in the first round. Him punching me was in the third round. Right. They made it look like I bit off more than I could chew, and how dare I, you know, Shamrock's going to make me pay for this. Listen, that was – the way they put that clip on there is not the way it happened. Right. Exactly. And then you got a guy – that was on uh, HDNet. That was a national public uh, – it, it was covered nationally. You're telling me Boss Rutten sees a guy whose nickname is the Leglock Monster. <laughs> B Boss Rutten is covering a national broadcast and doesn't do enough homework to see, well, this guy's won more fights by Leglock than anybody. He turns, it looks like a rolling knee bar. Maybe a, I, it just, I kind of lost respect for Boss on that. Now, I've heard he's a great guy. I've never got to meet him, but after that, I was I was just like, man. Why well, that, you that's do me what like I'm that? saying. It was so crazy to me that he didn't even notice the roll the knee bar. I mean, I've watched it. I mean, maybe ten times in my life, but even I noticed it. And I'm not an MMA guy. Do you think they just didn't well, want to give you like leeway there because you're so animated in the ring? They thought you were just trying to do like a little skit to entertain the crowd. I think they honestly had no idea who I was. And they see a guy. I look. I don't look very technical. I look like a guy off the out of the bar that's just a street fighter. I just that, and that's what he thought. I think because he even mentioned, "Oh, this is a a, a ball headed tank habit or something." And so that's what he thought. He thought I was just a brawler. He didn't do any homework on who I was, right. and he said something. Uh, he said something that was ignorant, but um, it got a lot of press and a lot of and you know that clips now i think on youtube it's got like i don't know a bunch of hundreds of thousands of views <laughs> right. definitely and, um and so you know the people that haven't heard of me which i've been like on the you know the pro wrestlers that do the independent circuit or what i've been i've been kind of on that circuit i've never fought in the ufc and so uh a lot of people don't know who i am and uh they hear boss say that and they think oh you know little short fat guys doing rolls and didn't know what he was doing and how dare he, him disrespect Ken Shamrock? And it played right along with what uh, what they were wanting for the show. Right. Now, I'll say this. People of YouTube, 
If you're monetizing that video with Jonathan Ivey doing the roles and everything, you better get him his money because, one, I wouldn't oh. want to owe him money. But seriously, if you're monetizing that video that's got a hundred and something thousand views, maybe 200, 300, give him some money over that, you know? <laughs> Am I right? If, you're, uh, if somebody's making yes. money off of you with views, pay pay the man, right? Every, uh, every couple months that... Uh that little clip of that role, people are, uh, it'll make it'll make its rounds on social media every three or four months, and I know that because people start tagging me in it like crazy on my <laughs> Facebook and stuff. But people has put the Mortal Kombat theme music to it and, and said, this, you know, this is what happens when you uh, don't know the buttons on the controller or whatever. You just start doing, it. but yeah, man, it's uh, every couple months I got to deal with that. Have you ever watched Talladega Nights with Will yeah. Ferrell? Okay, so you remember the part where Sasha Baron Cohen has him in an arm lock, and he's like, "Say, just say you like crepes. Just say you like crepes. And he's like, you're just going to have to break it. Now, I'm leading to somewhere with this. Okay. Have you ever grabbed the knee lock, the leg lock on someone, and you were just like, come on, man, tap out, tap out, tap out, and they didn't, and you were like, okay, I'm just going to have to break it. Has it ever well, gotten to that point? Got to break it. Yep. I've probably broken 10 legs, probably. One oh of them's on God. YouTube. It's, uh, well, I almost got in trouble one time. Oh, here's the thing. I'm just going to be honest with you guys because I like <laughs> y'all. I went down to Pensacola, Florida about uh, three years ago now, and uh, they had me fight a hometown boy. His name was Sammy Collinwood. Well, he was being very mean. I'm not used to people being mean and rude. I'm used to people being professional, and this is what we got to do. Well, he was trying to, like, intimidate me, and the guy had only had, like, 10 fights. And at this time, I had had over 100. And I'm thinking, I fought Ken Shermark. You think I'm going to be scared of you is what I'm thinking. But anyway, <laughs> and so we get in a fight. He's being, a, you know, mean and prick and all that. And so I, I knew as soon as the fight started, I thought, if I get a hold of something, I'm going to break it. Well, 30 seconds into the fight, I get a hold of his leg. He starts tapping. Well, I was already upset because this guy was being mean to me the night before at weigh-in. <laughs> and so I act like I didn't uh, feel it tap, you know, because my back's turned to him. I'm, I'm cranking on his knee. Um, and so I go ahead and break his leg, and the referee jumps in and, and says, hey, man, he tapped out. Well, one, it's a rule that I'm not supposed to tap. Uh, most people let go when their opponent taps, but it, you don't have to because the referee, you don't know if the referee's seen the tap or not. You're supposed to wait till the ta the referee makes you let go. So that's right. what I did, man. I said, ref, I didn't throw him tap. Uh, you had to tell me, and then it was too late. His leg was broke. But on YouTube, you see him try to – they try to get him to limp back to his corner. He sits there for forever, and um, it ended up his leg was being – it was broke. But it's happened a lot. Now, have I ever not, I don't, I don't, um, I had a fight up in, uh, where was that at? That was up in, uh, Indiana somewhere. And, uh, a guy tapped and I let go and the referee didn't see the tap and he restarted oh, it. And I ran out of gas and the guy ended up beating me. And so from then on, I was like, no, I'm gonna make the referee make me stop. I, I, I go a hundred miles an hour. Now it, to, to, to do that where you better tap, or I'm going to break it. You would have to be going half speed. Right. And, uh, Half speed means they're going to have double the time to get out of it or escape it. So I go 100 miles an hour, and if you don't tap out before I break it, that's on you, man. Uh, right. You know, the, the the show's got insurance to cover that. I was in a grappling <laughs> tournament. I did a grappling tournament one time. That's the only time I did that where I told the guy, he was he said he studied Dim Mock, and he knew there's a death touch. And um, I said, well, you're not, I said, buddy, you know, first, I don't, uh, I don't believe in any traditional martial arts, 
But um, he said he knew this Denmark death touch and just kidding around. I said, well, gosh, you're not going to use that today, are you? And he goes, no, but he said, he said don't worry. I'm not going to use it. I said, well, thank you. Well, I think something was a little wrong with him. And um, we're just doing a grappling tournament, and uh, I get him in a leg lock, and he won't tap. And I look at the ref. I said, well, if I go any further with this, he, 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 it's going to break his leg. And the referee said, please don't break his leg. It was one of these little small-town grappling tournaments. The only reason I entered it was to get the cash prize. Uh, for winning it. And so uh, I ended up letting it go and I moved to a chokehold. And uh, people tend to tap out whenever they're going to pass out. And so he tapped <laughs> from that. But that's the only uh, time I've ever uh, let somebody go without, without really trying to break it. Now, I'll be honest with you, man. I had notes for this interview, but you're such a good talker that I've just basically put my phone down. And I had to pick up my phone because I remembered. The point of an interview is to promote, right? <laughs> so well, you would think, yeah. But, so you know. let let's do some promotion, and then we'll get back to some silliness and some talking, some stories and everything else. Because, dude, I'm having a great time. This is awesome. So let's, let's do go. some promotion. He's defending his Coliseum Combat Championship. He's also putting on a show February 10th for his promotion. So if you want to tell us where that's going to be, I don't have the dates and times, but you're February okay. 10th. You're putting on a show. February 10th, I've got my own promotion. Um, I can't fight forever, and I have very limited job opportunities. Um, and so people was like, you got to start planning for when you get done fighting. So I started running my own promotion. This is my third event. The first two have sold out. You know, thank goodness. Um, this one's going to be February 10th in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, at the Middle Tennessee Expo Center. Well, I'm hoping this thing sells out. It, it seems like it's going in that direction. So we got about two weeks. And then uh, two weeks later, I'll go up to Kokomo, Indiana to defend the, my heavyweight title up there for Coliseum Combat. I won it last August, and I'm 41 years old, guys, and they had me fighting a 23-year-old. But uh, God willing, we're going to do that. And um, they got me defending the belt against Sean Salmon. He's a UFC veteran. This will be the 27th guy I fought in the UFC, but they've never let me in for some reason. Um, wow. There, there are several reasons, but that's, yeah, the, uh, uh, the most biggest one is I'm hard to deal with. I've never had a manager or anything like that. Uh, I've always thought if I'm taking 100% of the punches, I want 100% of the money. And so I've tried to manage myself my whole career, so maybe that's, that might have something to do with why I'm where I'm at. But um, I'm fighting Sean Salmon, and um, I think it's going to go good, guys. I really do. He's a good He wrestled in the Olympics. But uh, if he takes me down, he's going to get leg locked. So I don't think he's going to do that. So it's probably just going to end up being a kickboxing match. If you guys make it up to Kokomo, Indiana, not only do you get, am I going to give you tickets, but you're more than welcome to uh, go in the dressing room with us, walk out with us. Uh, last time I came out like Hannibal Lecter, and I had um, I had two of my cornermen come out as security guards, and they wheeled me out on the uh, on the dolly like they did in the movie Silence of the Lambs. Uh, awesome. So we. we we, we could dress you guys up in a costume and we'll come up with something. <laughs> hey, man, I'm game for that. You've been to Japan to fight for the Pancrase promotion. What was it mm -hmm. like working for them in Japan? Well, I'm going to now the, the, the correct answer was uh, it was an honor to go to Japan of the rising sun and, and, and get to compete in martial arts where everything originated. That was what I'm supposed to say. What I'm going to tell you is it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> it was a, it was a bad, that, that organization, at least the people I dealt with are terrible, man. And uh, I've caught a lot of flack with that. They they didn't send an interpreter. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm just going to tell you the story because I enjoy talking to you guys. I appreciate All right, that. I get over there. 
I get over there. I don't have an interpreter. They don't give me a, a hotel room. They've got me staying in an apartment that I'm not supposed to be at. The security guard at the front door says, I'm not allowed to be there. You can't stay there single nights at this place. Well, I guess they were trying to save money, so they put me in somebody's apartment. Well, I get harassed. Every time I go in and out the front door, there's apartment complex. And uh, it's not like I, I sit in over there. It's like I, I don't blend in over here, much less over there. Uh, so I've got to do that. Well, I end up meeting a girl at a Japanese restaurant who spoke English. And so I asked her to give me a tour. Anyway, long story short, the short fat guy did pretty good for himself. Well, we get to be real friendly. Um, so I'll say, you know what? You're going to be my interpreter and you're going to work, be my corner and you're going to go to the fight with me. Well, the organization was not let her in my corner. They wouldn't let her come to the show. I don't know how they, I think the, the, the men and women things different over there, but so now, so now I'm upset. Now I feel like they're disrespecting me because I've already got to fight the security guard of this apartment complex every time I walk in and out of the place. <laughs> so now, now I'm upset. So now I start getting a little upset. Well, they said, we want you to be the bad guy. So we, we, we're doing all the interviews and everything. They're like, you be real, real mean American. And so uh, I start boasting and talking big and saying what I'm going to do, playing that angle where I'm going to be the bad guy. The fight didn't go well. I felt like it was a quick stoppage. But the whole situation that I was, it was miserable, man. And, and I was looking forward to it because uh, Pankers has been around for so long. I was just misled, misled and misused over there. And uh, I don't think they're going to hear this podcast anyway. And if they do, <laughs> they're a long way away. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> hey, you know, our audience reaches tens of elevens of people every week. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many Tokyo viewer, uh, listeners we have, but hopefully they'll be uh, easy on me if they hear this. We're big in the Ukraine, but not so much in Tokyo. <laughs> okay, good. I'm safe then. <laughs> this has been one of the most fun interviews I've ever done because, like I said, you're such an easy guy to talk to. You're charismatic. And it's been so fun just to talk and just be honest. You have so many people that call in that do these interviews and they just give that honest answer, that that political answer where it's like, it was great wrestling in Japan. I loved it. But meanwhile, they're not telling you about the horrors of the bathroom in Japan. Did you ever have to ask for a Western toilet? I did not have to ask for a Western toilet, but, uh, you know, I'd say 60% of the people over there that walk down the street have surgical masks on. I didn't understand that, uh, because they, the other 40% don't have surgical masks on. So after a week of doing that, wouldn't the people that are having to wear the mask think, Hey, nothing bad's happening to the other people. Anyway, I never, I never understood that, but what is a, a, what do you mean a Western toilet? My toilet in my room was, uh, normal. Okay. Yeah. So Basically, in wrestling culture, they have, in Japan, most of the time, the toilets are a little porcelain hole on the ground. You're talking about like a bidet? No. It's actually a porcelain like bowl that sits directly on the ground, and that's what they use. They don't use a toilet like we use. So the toilet that we use is called a Western toilet. It's actually raised, and so you have to, sometimes you have to ask for that. So huh. I guess if you could Google it. You could see it. Well, you know, now in the Americas, we have the Squatty Potty. Yeah. No, this you're, you're doing the exact opposite. No, Squatty Potty is to get your legs up. Uh -huh. If you're listening to Squatty Potty, we'll be happy to be your sponsor. But Squatty Potty is to get your legs up. <laughs> this is just a hole in the ground that you set on, and that's their basic toilet. Well, uh, uh, 
I didn't know this, but maybe they did me a favor because yeah. <laughs> uh, they they gave me a Western toilet. I don't think, but the way you're describing it, I don't think I'm limber enough to use that other thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andre the Giant, when he used to go to Japan, there was these stories. Hulk Hogan sto- told a story in his book when Andre the Giant went to Japan, he was miserable because he's a larger-than-life guy. He's flying in a plane that really is not big enough to hold him. He's flying overseas, and then he's going to a country that's built for somebody that's like 5'3", five, 5'4", five, like smaller people. And he is all of seven foot tall. So they said what he used to do, because he couldn't fit in the bathrooms and the toilets were so small, that he used to throw newspapers on his bed and then crap right there on his bed just on the newspapers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Andre. Yeah, Andre the Giant. The same bed that Hulk Hogan said that he made a lot of women make wild noises and he thought that he might be hurting them. Let me introduce so. you to the thermos, sister. <laughs> <laughs> uh well wow. Yeah. Well, no, I will say uh, I, uh, <laughs> well, I'm speechless after that Can I that say one. this? I feel like I've accomplished something because Jonathan Ivey is speechless over a story I just told. That is awesome. Yeah, because yeah, you know Andre's number twos had to be just, I mean, just bottle pill, body pillow size. Right. And know. so, uh, yeah, and then you got women in the next. But I don't think they, they, we didn't have beds over there. We had to sleep on the, they, like they had like a, I don't know what you would call that, but it was on the ground. Like I guess I, uh, I don't. Yeah, no, I, I had, I had a little pallet. Yeah, I had a little pallet. <laughs> I felt like I was spending the night over my friend's house, like when I was seven years old, and they gave me a little pallet. <laughs> That's awesome because I think me and Josh grew up together, and every time Josh come over to my house, we had a mattress that was sitting against the wall, and I would just pull that thing down. It's like there you go, man. You're gonna sleep on that, and that's that was my, his pallet. That that's was my what own we did. little private Japan. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Do you uh, do you have anything lined up after Coliseum Combat? Uh, no, I don't have any fights lined up. Uh, I'm planning on fighting on my next show. Um, it's probably gonna be in Nashville, and I'm wanting to to bring in a a, a big name like a Butterbean or a Tank Abbott or a, a type like that. Whatever I can. The, the, because both of those guys are older, so I'm hoping they won't charge me crazy numbers. But right. uh, I'm wanting, that's what I'm wanting to do. I'm wanting to fight here in Middle Tennessee. I don't like traveling, man. People think that they love traveling and they want to. I don't like it. If the, the shortest amount of distance I can go to make the money and then get right back home uh, is is what I prefer. So I'm, I'm going to try to fight right here in Middle Tennessee and and uh, and do that. I think that's the the best thing for me. Yeah, man. When I was wrestling, I was like, how fast can I get in the ring, make my money, and then get back home? Because you don't want to have to do the long layovers, the long drives. I can't tell you how many storms that I've had to drive through going, is a tornado going to take me out? Am I going to am I gonna die driving to Dyersburg, Tennessee tonight? <laughs> and you, <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't want that, you know? And I fought in Venezuela, Mexico, Japan, Almost every state, uh, except maybe Alaska, everybody thinks, uh, man, you, you're so lucky. You got to the, all, all I got to see was two days of a hotel room and then right back on the plane and, and fly away. And so it's not like this, this great, uh, lavish thing that people think. And some of the hotel room, man, they've had me in some doozies. Let me tell you, they don't, uh, 
They, they, they put me in some, uh, I remember I fought Dan the Beast Severin. He did pro wrestling for a little while, but we fought up in Massachusetts. And uh, it was the first big-name guy I'd ever fought. And I, was, I thought I was really going to make it. I thought, man, this is it. I'm, they're flying me up here. They picked me up in um, uh, a SUV. And I remember they picked me and Dan up at the same time from the airport. And I'm sitting behind him in this SUV. And his head was mad. And I got a big head. But this guy's head, and I remember thinking, there's no way if I punch that, it's going to hurt him. It's just so big. Well, they get us to, they get us to the uh, motel. It was a, 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 a not a nice place by any means, but we get there and there's a used condom in my in, on the floor in my room, <laughs> and so and Dan's right across the hallway from me, and I remember thinking, man, this is my 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 big time shot right here, and there's a used condom in the, on the floor of my room. So <laughs> it was uh, I, it, it was just it was one of those things, man, where it's uh, traveling's never been good to me, unfortunately. <laughs> Pro wrestlers are notorious for playing practical jokes on one another. Is it the same in the MMA world? If so, do you have any good ones you know, yeah. you'd know like to share? Not really funny-wise, guys. Um, it's pretty much just real serious because, I mean, right. you're fixing to get in a locked cage with somebody that whether or not their wife and kids have a roof over their head depends on whether or not they right. beat you unconscious. You know, And so it gets pretty serious, but one time... I think it did have, I was fighting Caracas, Venezuela. Nobody spoke English. And I remember I had my mouth, I, I had my, when I'm, in the, I'm in the dressing room of the venue and I'm getting dressed and I'm walking over to mirrors and stuff like this. Well, I've got my stuff on this little table area. Well, I come back, they're fixing to call me out. It's almost my time to, to walk out to fight and my mouthpiece isn't there. And I know my mouthpiece was there, guys. <laughs> I'm a professional. I, br I bring my cup, my mouthpiece, and my fight shorts. Well, my mouthpiece was out there. Somebody took my mouthpiece. Well, they call my name. I hear it over the city. They go out Monster Jonathan Ivy. And so I've got to walk out. I don't got a mouthpiece. And, uh, these gold teeth I got, I got them when I was real young, probably 17 years old. Well, they they were expensive, and I, I don't want to walk around like I ain't got no teeth. Anyway, so I got from, I remember immediately I looked to my right, there's a guy from Canada. They had just got beat up real bad. His mouthpiece was sitting there. I said, buddy, give me your mouthpiece. I went out and fought a Brazilian with a Canadian mouthpiece, that, and it, this guy had slobber. God, this is not a... Uh, Anyway, so I've got a mouthpiece that don't fit. I'm, I'm, I'm almost gagging, throwing up, thinking this guy's saliva is getting in my mouth. Um, but, yeah, I, I went out and fought a Brazilian with a Canadian mouthpiece in Venezuela. That's what happened. Do you have any advice you could give to young up-and-comers in the MMA game as far as maybe yeah. like to how to stay relevant yeah, or, it, you know, longevity in right. the MMA game? Um. Well, I mean, if I was talking to somebody that I cared about that was just getting started in it, one, I would tell them to pick something different. Uh, it's hard to make money in this. It looks cool on TV, but there's so much wear and tear on your body, guys. Some, sometimes I wake up and I feel 90 years old. It, it takes me, you know, 30 minutes to get going in the mornings. Um, right, yeah. But it's it's so hard to make money, man. It's, it's and it, the percentage of people that, that do it and just, get $500 compared to the, you know, Conor McGregor's and stuff that get millions. But it's so hard to really sustain yourself off fighting. And every time you go in the cage, I don't care how well it goes, you come out a little bit less of a man 
physically than you were when you went in. It's just, it, it's, I would say pick something different, but if you're not, if you just love it, if you're just insane and it's either this or you're going to be a serial killer, I would say, um, I would say do it, love it, because you're going to have to invest all your time into it, and um, don't be cookie cutter. There's a there's a million guys out there that all look and sound and act the same and fight the same, and those are the guys that kind of fade in and out. Do something original, be original, do something different, and and surround yourself with people that care about you. I didn't do that. I I always thought I knew all the answers. And uh, it was going to be my way or the highway. You know, looking back, I probably should have uh, got smarter people around me and, 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 and took their advice. So surround yourself with people that care about you, that really care about you, not just care about getting 10%, 20% of your money. Um, they care about you, love it, and uh, give it everything you got, man. It's, uh, but I tell you, it's a rough business. Well, once again, he's got a book coming out this summer called Jonathan Ivey, The Leglock Monster with Charlie Dykstra. And you can catch Jonathan Ivey's Cage Fighting Championships Saturday night, February 10th, Murfreesboro, Tennessee at the Middle Tennessee Expo Center. Also, Coliseum Combat 43, Saturday, February 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time in Kokomo, Indiana. It has been a blast, man. Truly a pleasure, man. Thanks, guys. Yeah, um, as soon as the fight hits the floor, get out your stopwatches because I'm going to break his leg in about 60 seconds. (laughs) Great talking to you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, guys. Florida Ticket Station. Florida. Your one-stop shop for discounted tickets on all of Orlando's best theme parks. Orlando. All of Orlando's local attractions. Orlando. All of Orlando's events. All of Orlando's local attractions and so much more. They offer affordable tickets to Disney World, Mickey Mouse, Universal Studios, Back to the Future, SeaWorld, Legoland, Everything is Awesome, Bush Gardens, I don't know what that is, and so much more. But but seriously, Josh, they are licensed and insured with the state of Florida. So you can rest assured that your reservations are valid. Summer's coming and vacation time's right around the corner. Round the corner. So go to tinyurl.com slash p3florida and book your Orlando vacation today. Today. tinyurl.com slash p3florida. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of P3 Radio. Once again, we'd like to thank the leglock monster, Jonathan Ivey, for being a part of today's show. You can check out his events on Facebook. Just go there and type in Jonathan Ivey's Cage Fighting Championships. It'll come up, and while you're over there on Facebook, type in Pop Poncho and visit our Facebook page. Also, follow us on Twitter at P3Radio1. That's P3Radio1. Or send us an email at P3Radio1 at gmail.com. Or give us a call at our number, 731-300-6675. For Josh Briley, this is Richard Mulliken saying thanks again for listening, and good night. P3 Radio.